Let me give you a little motto I live my life by. Bang, bang, bang the drum. What? That's not a motto, that's, that's just you saying a bunch of things. It's difficult to name one favorite drummer. Roy! Haynes! Wow. You're amazing, dude. Thanks. I like to play. Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. You're only as good of a drum set player as you are a snare drummer. How many times have you heard me say that on the show? That's one of the credos that we live by here at the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. And I believe that statement, when it's taken at even its most base value, really underlines why we're doing this show. Uh, we are welcoming this week one of the premier orchestral percussionists and snare drummers in the world, Mr. Rob Knopper. Now, if you're not familiar with Rob, do a little bit of drumming archaeology. Get on Google, search his name. And you're going to find quite a bit of stuff about this guy. Uh, he is a percussionist in New York City with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. But he also has quite a presence on social media. And he's very active in the percussion education and audi audition education community. Now, that being said, I am well aware that 95% of our audience are drum set players. So you're probably asking yourself, why does this have to do with anything? You know, I can play snare drum a certain way and I can incorporate it into my drum set however I want to. Well, that's true. But sometimes I think having a concert snare drummer who has incredible expertise and education in the specialties of that discipline is nothing but a help to us. There are some things that I know that I've learned from studying concert snare drum that are directly applicable and just very helpful to me as a drum set player. For example, we discuss in detail how being proficient in concert snare drum helps us on drum set with things like technique, chops, working on terrace dynamics and gradual dynamics, and the ability to troubleshoot challenging stickings and also just developing a critical ear. So even if you're new to this style of playing, give this a listen. Rob's going to give you some tips on how to start out and where to go, what methods to use, what literature to work on, and eventually we're going to get to sort of what I call the pinnacle of this style of playing, uh, the Jacques de la Clouse du's etudes, of which Rob is a specialist in this. He, he can pretty much tell you anything and everything you need to know about the De La Clouse etudes. Another thing that Rob is also a specialist at is another thing that we don't deal with that much as drum set artists. He is a specialist in teaching and helping uh, musicians excel at auditions. So what I had him do was I had him walk us through the typical audition process. 
And we approached it from the standpoint of an orchestral style audition. Now, of course, you could apply this to virtually any other type of audition, but give you an example. I had him walk through what it's like to just first find an audition. Secondly, how to apply, like sending in resumes, sending in recordings, other other type of media. Then what happens if you get called to a physical audition? Is it person to person? Is it behind a curtain? Then we talk about the different cuts that happen through the different rounds of audition and then moving on to the next round of audition and then ultimately how you find out your results and if there's room for pay negotiations before you sign your contract. I know that overall this audition process is a little bit of a mysterious thing to a lot of musicians and so I thought it would be interesting to hear firsthand what it's like to deal with that sort of stress and that sort of process. All right, we're going to go ahead and join this interview. But prior to that, you know, I like to play a little bit of Joiner music. What you're going to find out is that Rob is a frustrated prog rock drummer. So I thought it would be kind of nice to lead us into that interview with some music that he finds extremely appealing. All right, onward to Mr. Rob Knopper. Just out of curiosity also, how are how is the weather as far as springtime in New York City right now? Um, it's amazing. Uh, every day I want to go outside as much as possible because recently it's been like, you know, 30 and 40 and finally it's getting up into like 55, 60 and uh, generally been sunny. And um, so there there is this is part of the like two or three week period in between deathly cold and like humid, sticky, and hot, so I'm trying to enjoy it right now. What part of the city do you live in? I'm in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. Okay, well, in in conjunction with your gig, you're not that far away then from like Lincoln Center. Exactly, yeah, I walk to work. Oh, that's that's tremendous, man. What about practice? We're, that One of the things that we like to talk to our musicians, especially that live in New York and in L.A., where do you actually get to practice? Yeah. Um, it's funny cause I recently, uh, got a nice loud aggressive knocking on the wall, uh, from my neighbor, uh, a few weeks ago. The, that's the first time really that's happened to me in New York after being here for eight years of, uh, of working and four years of going to school. Um, I only practice, uh, not loud things at home. Like I have my, my, um, um, ragtime xylophone here and, uh, 
Um, every once in a while, I'll bring my like triangle home, but I never practice snare drum or, or cymbals or tambourine or anything like that at home. Um, I don't think even timpani would fit through the door. Um, it's hard enough to get a, a large sized xylophone in. Um, so yeah, practicing at home is kind of, um, uh, it's my, um, it's my backup. Um, but really I am lucky in that I, uh, am able to practice at the Met. Um, we have a bunch of rooms downstairs. Um, you kind of have to scrounge around for rooms or practice in the staircase. But, um, but I've been, I've gotten pretty good at, at finding all the nooks and crannies of that building that I can set up a snare drum in. Do you have any, uh, complaints about playing maybe on practice pad? Um, I don't practice on practice pad, uh, ever really. I got, um, that advice from my teacher when I was in high school and, and I agree because, um, you know, the, the, so the way that your hand, um, and the, all the tiny little muscles and, and ligaments and, and everything in your hand, um, adapt to the stick and manipulate the stick, uh, is really based on the, the physics of the stick, um, bouncing up and down off of the, the head. And when you have the wrong amount of tension and the wrong material, um, uh, then you're, you're learning to adjust how your hand works and wraps around the stick um, in, incorrectly and, and for the wrong instrument. So I, I always practice on a drum. Interesting, man. I, I have never heard anyone use that particular reasoning for it. The one thing I always tell all my students, I always say, look, if you can practice on snare drum or if you can practice on the drum set, absolutely do your work there because, of course, that's where you're going to do your performances, right? But that's a very interesting uh, set of reasons, man, for not using a, a practice pad. Now, you're doing your own segues. This is great, man, because I want to I want to step back when you were talking about when you were studying when you were younger. Now, you're not originally from the New York area, it's my understanding. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Where are you originally from? And give us a little bit of context just from the standpoint of when you started playing as well. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a small town uh, called Chelsea, Michigan, um, which is uh, west of Ann Arbor, we are known for Jiffy mixes, the, the, you know, the blue and white cake, um, cake batter and muffin batter. Cornbread, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, they never do advertising. They don't advertise anywhere. They just stock, uh, all the grocery stores. Um, that's all they do. <laughs> well, it, the products are good enough, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we have about 4,000 people and I grew up, um, in, uh, like right in between a, a cornfield and a forest. And, um, so normally, um, playing drums in my parents' basement was not a big deal in terms of neighbors. Um, so it's quite a bit different now. Um, yeah. And, um, so I grew up in Michigan. Um, we had a pretty good school there and, um, and, and a great music program with really, really supportive music directors and, um, I, I started on drum set when I was, uh, I think eight, although I, I am told that I was playing, um, various types of drums with various implements on the dashboard of the car and on all types of furniture around the house younger than that. So I think for my parents, it was kind of like, it wasn't a question of, should we get him a drum set is when are we going to finally get him a drum set? Um, 
And uh, so I started when I was eight and my on drum set, not percussion at all, not classical. We listened to um, to almost exclusively progressive rock from the 70s in the house. And so those bands are still um, among my favorite. Yes, Genesis, King Crimson, um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Um, I would say those are the that that type of music is the biggest influence on me um, in general. And, uh, so yeah, I started drum set lessons at the age of eight and, uh, then, um, very casually then in middle school, I started like joining bands and, and of course that's the age when you get a skateboard and start playing heavy metal with your friends. So, um, I finally got a, a drum set, um, Mapex drum set. And the reason I got a Mapex drum set was because it was the cheapest drum set that you could get with the 24 inch bass drum that I obviously needed for, for heavy metal. Um, so I got that with like a double bass drum pedal and, uh, and I was playing with bands and, and, um, that's like, uh, yeah, all I would do. Um, and then, uh, um, in high school I was getting more excited about playing drum set and, Um, so I started and and I also was just joining all the music stuff at school. I I joined, we have a Celtic orchestra, we have a show choir, we have, uh, we had a jazz band and marching band and I was, um, um, playing a lot of drum set. I, I applied to, um, a summer festival, Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp. You know that one? Not familiar with that one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so it's like a, um, it's like an watered down interlocking a little bit for younger students. They wear the same outfits as far as I remember, light blue outfits. And so I was, I guess I was, it was after middle school, before high school. Um, I applied to do their jazz band program for drum set. That was the only thing you only summer festival thing you could apply for, for drum set. And they said, no, but if you, well, they rejected my application. Um, so, uh, or I forget if I sent in an audition tape or if I just, applied with a sheet of paper either way they rejected it and they said but we do have an extra spot in our concert band um and uh so that was the first time like i really did something um on purpose like percussion wise and uh so i went there and i actually really liked it um i remember this this competition that the the instructor there had it was who can play through all 12 major scales the fastest and we were all like what 14 or whatever. And none of us like knew any major scales. So we all had to work out like C and D and E and like, so, um, we, uh, so I, I just remember being like super fascinated with this. I was really into it. And, uh, the next year I really started percussion lessons with a local, um, uh, timpanist who lived in the area. Um, and that kind of, um, that jump started my interest in classical percussion, um, and uh, I can keep going unless you, you want to cut in here. <laughs> I, I want to cut in and ask yeah. one quick thing, and then I want to jump right back to where you were. Yeah. Um, are you still playing any drum set? I know that the Met keeps a crazy schedule. Yeah. Um, well, so I have a electronic drum set um, that I uh, play occasionally. I was playing a lot right when I got the job. I bought this drum set, and I was playing in three bands, um, and I kind of uh, transitioned that interest over to um, playing the the Delacluse stuff on snare drum. And I, I've mm-hmm. sort of, 
had one singular focus outside of the Met at any given time. And at various times, that interest is drum set. Um, I've played a little drum set in the orchestra. We had a, a West Side Story performance. Um, and I've done a couple chamber music things on drum set. Um, I've been doing this festival in South Africa where they need a lot of drum set. And so I've been doing that there a lot. Um, so I still... Now it's, um, I do drum set like a lot in the summer and I'll be fascinated. I'm always fascinated at the end of the season to see, oh, my drum set chops are like still kind of there. Um, so that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now stepping back and talking about the lessons that you had with the timpanist that was, I suppose in Michigan, right? Yeah. What type of methods and which instruments were you working on with this teacher? Yeah, good question. Um, so I, I guess I sort of um, just started from the beginning on on a lot of stuff. So he got me the Goldenberg xylophone book or or Mallet's book. Classic. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the Goodman timpani book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember exactly what we were working on on snare drum. It's it's possible it was the Sarone book or maybe the. Is there another Goldenberg book for snare drum? That's what I was going to say. Modern School for Snare Drum would be my probably pick for that because those are, we ha- we've we had a couple shows on here where we talk about the Bibles of method books and all three of those, the Goldenberg, well, the Sarone is too, Goodman on timpani and, and, and the Mallet book for Goldenberg are all part of the Bibles. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember looking through like the Goldenberg xylophone book and finding Porgy and Bess and asking my teacher like, hey, can I learn this? And he said, we'll get there. We'll get there. You have to start with the etudes first. I was going to say you went from zero to hero immediately, <laughs> right, On that, in that method. So somewhere then in your high school career, everyone has these different thoughts of like, well, what am I going to do with my life? You know, I've got high school. It's going to be finishing up. Am I going to go to college? And more importantly, what am I going to study in college? So did you have any type of conversation with your teacher, conversation with your parents, any type of day of reckoning where you're kind of like, I'm going to try to make this thing work because I know where you went to school and we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that first year of studying my freshman year, I just knew I wanted to do music. Um, I knew like that was my number one interest and I didn't know if I was going to be like touring with a rock band or um, running a chamber music ensemble where we played progressive rock arrangements um, or being in like a Genesis cover band or I, I didn't really I didn't really know what direction it would take me. I was kind of trying to um, do as many things as I possibly could and be well rounded in music until I got to the point where I could figure out figure that out. Um, in the summer after my freshman year, I went to Interlochen. Um, and I, it was at that point that things really changed for me. Um, I was, uh, so, so Interlochen, they have, um, first of all, they have these, they, they used to have these systems called challenges. So there's two orchestras and every week, um, any, so, so they, so there's two orchestras and there's five or six percussionists in each orchestra and you're placed in 
one to six chair or one uh, of the top orchestra or the lowest orchestra based on your placement in the original audition. And every week, anybody can challenge the person above them, meaning you do this blind challenge where both people have to play the excerpt um, and everyone else in the section gets to vote on who gets the higher chair. Um, and so if you wanted to keep your chair, you had to, to, um, to defend it from these challengers. And I remember that summer I was all the way at the bottom of the lowest orchestra. And at the very end, like by the, I would try to challenge every single week and I, and I was working, I met my best friend Brian there and every week we were working as hard as we could on these challenge excerpts. And every week I would try to challenge the person above me. And by the very end of the summer, I challenged and I won the fifth chair up from the sixth chair in the lowest orchestra. But it started a fire in me. And uh, and the other thing that happened during that summer was I learned from the teacher that I had there, Keith Aleo, who's awesome and I'm, I'm still good friends with him. Um, he taught me about the union, um, the union, the music union and, and how orchestra jobs work. And I realized that if I were interested in doing orchestra above playing in a rock band or any of those other things I mentioned, um, I would have the opportunity to, first of all, compete fairly for a spot in an orchestra um, through their blind audition process. Um, I would have a regular salary and, and benefits I could have a stable life and a family. And so those things were really attractive to me. Um, so even though at that point I, I didn't, I didn't know if classical music was going to be my favorite kind of music on earth or not, I knew that orchestra, the orchestra track was what I had to do if I wanted to, to have, uh, the type of normal life that I was kind of expecting or, or wishing for. Yeah. Interesting. And so that obviously kind of spurred you toward I'm going to have to go study on, at, at a music school, basically. And we'll go ahead and pull the curtain back and expose uh, the wizard here. You went to Juilliard. That's right. Now, I think everybody pretty much knows that they just don't give those spots away uh, at Juilliard. How did you get involved in that? Who recommended that you go there? And then how, as far as like, how was your audition conducted? Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, so as I was getting towards my senior year of high school, I was talking a lot with my teachers about, and I had started studying with members of the Detroit symphony and the, the faculty of university of Michigan at that point, just the best teachers in the area that I could find. Um, and I was talking to them about college auditions a lot because I, I knew that that was a, uh, important point in my development. I needed to get into a good school and, and make the best choice. Uh, so junior year, I, they recommended that I go and visit a ton of schools and I, I'm glad I did. So I visited like Carnegie Mellon. I went to, um, a few schools in Ohio, Cleveland and Oberlin. Um, I visited schools in Boston, New York, uh, Washington, DC, uh, I can't even remember all of them, but um, Chicago. Um, so I had this kind of broad list of schools that I was kind of mildly interested in or, or generally interested in. 
And after taking lessons with each of those teachers and talking to alumni, I kind of narrowed it down to a concise five schools that met my um, my uh, important that that met the three considerations that I was uh, that were on my mind for schools. Um, I knew I wanted to be an orchestral track player. I had already decided this, but I didn't want to go to a school that was only focused on orchestral playing. I wanted to be a little bit more well-rounded um, in my undergrad, and then I could um, specialize in my grad um, or afterwards. So those three qualifications were, it had to have a good orchestral teacher who played in an orchestra, meaning I, I love the teachers at Indiana, but I didn't want to go um, study with, with study in a town where there wasn't a... Um, a big orchestra in that town. Um, so, uh, that was one qualification, one consideration. Second orchestral timpanist, right? So I didn't know if I wanted to be a timpanist or a percussionist at that point. And then third was other. I wanted to make sure that there were a variety of other things I could do and explore. So whether that was, you know, uh, world music or, or jazz or solo marimba, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't ready to stop working on all that other stuff um, because I didn't know where it would take me and I didn't want to cut off my, my opportunities. So that those three considerations really narrowed down my, um, my big list of colleges until it was finally at a concise five. Um, so then in my senior, in my senior year, um, I, uh, I applied to each one of those sent in maybe a pre-screening tape to Juilliard, I think. Um, and that was due in December 1st. And then the auditions were all between January and March, I believe. And, uh, so I, I, uh, did all the auditions and, um, I didn't, I had no idea how many spots they were going to have open and everything, but, uh, it, it turned out that, you know, I mentioned the, the best friend that I had at, that I made at Interlochen, um, this guy, Brian turns out Brian and I were the two percussionists accepted at Juilliard as freshmen that year. We were the two percussionists accepted at Cleveland Institute of Music. Um, we were both accepted at Manhattan School of Music. And uh, so I ended up getting into all five of those um, schools, which was awesome. Um, but I do think it was because of my like extreme dedication to just like researching the heck out of them um, beforehand and really focusing my like entire summer before my senior year and senior year on on practicing you single-handedly have the most dedicated research towards school of any guest that we've ever had that that's mm. amazing man that you went through that much i wish that half uh, what let me say i wish that one of my students had half the amount <laughs> of curiosity that you had when it came to that. That's that's absolutely fantastic and glad to hear it. Now, that leads me to ask you this. On your website, you are self-professed to have an obsessive personality. And that, yes. <laughs> that pretty much locked it in there. I used to have a teacher in my undergraduate school that used to tell me all the time, that all of his best students had some form of mild OCD. Do you think that has something to do also with the rate of success that you've had as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, any of my friends would tell you that I can be difficult and, uh, and it stems from, uh, from 
whatever whatever it is that causes that obsession. Um, and I also think that that um, there's something about that obsessive personality that um, brings people to the Met Orchestra and all the other orchestras in the United States. The type of personality that can be um, um, that can project manage this just outrageous process of audition preparation um, and and um, be persistent enough to uh, to yeah win a job in a big orchestra. You tend to see that yeah there's some some level of um, obsess uh, obsessive obsessive personality um, characteristics in in everybody, and they all kind of pop up in a little bit different ways, I think. Um, but it's very interesting to, uh, to observe that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you end up graduating from Juilliard? Yes. Uh, yeah, I went, studied there for four years, graduated. Did you go to grad school afterward? Um, I started, uh, and I'm not sure if it was called grad school, but I started, uh, maybe artist diploma or artist degree, um, at a school in Cleveland that I only ended up being at for six months. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And then I suppose after that, you started going into the world of auditions. I was auditioning for orchestras since my junior year of high school. Okay. Now, yeah. I want to I wanna really spend some time here on this because this is a world that for most drum set players is incredibly foreign. I mean, I, I'm primarily a drum set player myself, and I can count on one hand. I've been doing it for 30 years. I can count on one hand how many auditions that I've done. But for the world of orchestra, it's just it's just the way business is done. It's the way it's taken care of. So I want to run through just a list of some questions, and you can extrapolate on this as much or as little as you like. Okay. Okay. So let's first talk about how do you find out about auditions for orchestras? Um, yeah, auditions are uh, advertised in the International Musician, which is the publication that the American Federation of Musicians, the union, puts out every month. So it's May 2nd, so probably yesterday a new batch of auditions were announced. And you can go in the in the paper, and I usually have one on my desk, but not right now. Um, uh, you can go... Flip to the back. I always start at the back and uh, and look through their audition announcements. Usually, there's somewhere between zero and three announcements per month of orchestras of various sizes, from you know extremely regional, small, part-time orchestras to somewhere like the Met. Right. Now let's talk about the application process. Yeah. Generally, what do you expect to have to submit? Usually you only send your resume at first and, and based on their particular contract that they've negotiated with the management. So each orchestra's musicians have a have a unique contract that they negotiate with the management, just like any other union. But that contract usually in, includes audition process. Uh, and so every audition is, is a little bit different. So some orchestras have you send a tape first if you're not qualified for the live round. That's how the Met is. So you send your resume and they they sort the resumes into two piles. One pile is these people are qualified uh, to come to our live audition just based on their 
experience or these people are not qualified so they can send a tape uh, of their playing and if it's a tape usually they ha they give you a repertoire list of um you know a a, a set of short pieces or, or short excerpts from orchestra pieces. And usually a percussion excerpt will be somewhere between like two and five lines of music. And it'll be the hardest snare drum part from a Prokofiev piece and the hardest cymbal part from a Dvorak piece. Um, and so usually for the tape round, it's a shorter list, maybe between six and 10 excerpts. Um, and so you make a tape, either audio or video based on their guidelines and you send it in. Uh, I made a tape for my Met audition. I, that means I wasn't qualified, um, in my resume to, to get into the live, the live orchestra audition without a tape. So I made a tape, um, and, uh, and I got in through that, through that tape round. Gotcha. So Rob, when you say you didn't qualify on resume alone, essentially in the, in the audition ad, is there a list that says, look, if on your resume you have been doing this, this makes you qualified where you don't have to send the tape in? No, um, no, not at all. On the audition ad, it only says send your resume to okay. this place. Um, and then you'll get an email. Oh, Once you send you. it in, yeah, you'll get an email telling you what the results of your resume round were. Gotcha. Now, regarding the rounds, typically, how many rounds do you have before you get to an in-person physical audition? Yeah, typically, there will be a resume round. Sometimes there will be a tape round, but sometimes there won't be. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, when there's not a tape round, it means either they take everyone and they let everyone audition. That's called a cattle call audition, um, which so, for instance, Detroit and Chicago do that. Uh, I don't know who else exactly. If if they don't take everybody, then they'll just disqualify some people and say, based on your resume, you can't go. Some orchestras are like that. But then uh, um I feel the the more civilized decision is we'll do a tape round and at least give you the opportunity to prove yourself. Um, after all the the non-live rounds, then there's the live audition. And usually that happens in just a few days, two or three days, sometimes a week if they have to spread it out based on their schedule. There will generally be a prelim round, a semifinal round, and a final round. So the first two days where there's the most people, there will be a prelim round. Um, or sometimes it takes three or four days. Um, tons of people apply for these auditions. So sometimes 200 or 250 percussionists will apply. So there could be a lot of live prelim round players. Um, so the prelim round is usually like six or eight excerpts. Um, they're usually the standard excerpts. I'm really speaking generally right now because mm -hmm. there's a lot of exceptions to this rule. Um, but it's that round, um, is kind of feels like the most brutal, like they'll just cut, 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 and just let a few people through. Um, and so I guess, you know, depends on the orchestra, but it'll narrow down from like by that time, 60 or 80 people played in the prelims. And then usually it's maybe 15 people in the semifinal round, 10 to 15, so then it's narrowed down to 10 or 15. And a lot of the time, the, the semis and the finals will all be the same day because there's not uh -huh. that many 
people. So in the semis, you'll have a more extensive uh, list of repertoire to play. So they give you a big list at the beginning when you first send in your resume. And that is the list for the audition. And that's the list of excerpts that the um, committee is able to choose from for the prelims, semis, and finals. So yeah, the, the prelims is usually like the, the classics, right? Maybe one or two to trip you up, but usually they just want to make sure you can play. And then the semis is more extensive, but not too long. So your, your entire round might be 15 minutes in the semis. And then from there, it narrows down from, you know, 10 to 15 down to three or four or sometimes less. Um, and that round is usually like longer, like a half hour and you play everything. You play the, the marimba solo that you, uh, that, that was on the list and you play, um, um, all the more obscure excerpts that they, they want to know if you really went deep and you are really the, the complete package. Um, yeah. Are all these behind the curtain, even from the very most preliminary in-person round? Yeah. This is something that changes from orchestra to orchestra Mm -hmm. At, at the Met. We're special and unique. We are behind the screen all the way through. You wouldn't be able to tell who the person is until after they already won the job. And it's too late, um, which is cool. I, I really like that. I think it it prohibits bias and it tends to elevate um, less known um, players that come out of nowhere that really have the chops but just don't have the experience. Um, in in England, for instance, uh, uh, it, it's less about um, eliminating bias and more about seeing how the players, um, actually can play with the orchestra. So you have a long trial period with the orchestra and many players will do this, um, f- over a period of, of a couple of years. But in the United States, it's generally more about the audition and more about trying to eliminate bias. Usually what happens is in the last round, they take the screen away. Um, and the two or three people in the finals play without a screen so that the, the committee can really, see how they present themselves, I guess. Um, yeah. And I'm personally a fan of, of keeping the screen up for the last round. Um, but I'm, but the, uh, um, in, in general, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, through any of those rounds, aside from all the prepared pieces, do they have you do any sight reading? Yeah. Um, usually they'll on the, on the list, it'll say candidates should be prepared for sight reading. And that also changes from orchestra to orchestra. The Met doesn't do sight reading um, as a general, um, in general. But actually, I, now that I think about now that I think about it, I think they have done it before in some cases. Um, and then at the audition, you'll just see any random piece on the stand. Gotcha. Yeah. Now let's talk about the inevitable mistake. Yeah. I, I've got quite a few friends that play in different orchestras and they talk about different auditions, the ones that they made, the ones that they didn't make. And I'm like, Hey, what happened? He goes, didn't go well, man. I made a mistake. Yeah. Now that, that to me is one of those things that, uh, I give people a lot of leeway, especially if they're playing very musically and whatnot, but just how critical uh, and I know you, you're talking about 
hundreds sometimes of people that are auditioning, at least sometimes 60 to 80, you're saying. How critical is it, especially when you get to those final rounds, that you literally do not make a mistake? Yeah, uh, good question. It's not critical at all, and I made mistakes in every round of my med audition. Uh Um, I I don't think it's important to not make mistakes. I think um, it's easy to tell the difference between a good player and um, a good player who makes mistakes and a great player who makes mistakes. It's, you know, they may have made the same number of mistakes, but there are so many uh, micro details that you can learn about the player um, within the rest of the music that they're not making mistakes in that it's easy to look, everybody's going to make mistakes. And even when somebody wins the job, they're going to make mistakes once they have the job. Uh, it's not about how many mistakes you can make. It's about learning what kind of attention to detail and what kind of preparation process this player has. So if you have the kind of process that, um, that brings you to learning and, and cleaning every single detail about the music, whether it's, um, the, the tiny gradations of dynamic or, um, or phrasing or, um, or rhythm, um, then, uh, then it'll come through whether or not you have a good audition or, or not so good audition. I mean, I always, I always like think of my auditions as, you know, audition day is going to be a randomized example of how you play. It might be a good version. It might be a bad version. It might be right in the middle. The point is not to shoot for the moon and have the best possible audition on audition day. The point is to make your playing as, as great as you possibly can so that even on a bad day, your playing is going to beat everyone else. Everyone else's good day. That's, that's another one of our mantras on the show is how good is your bad? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I like you, that. You've got to, you've got to make sure that your good as a professional musician is better, uh, or your bad is better than the uh, that the normal good of a of an amateur. So that's that's yeah. very good. So now you've gotten through the final round. Generally, how long does it take before you get the result of your final audition? Um, the the last round that I played at the Met. Um, um, I played it. There were eight other people in my round. Um, and by the way, I just want to clarify, I said last because we didn't do it. We didn't end up doing a final round and I'll tell you why in a second. So we had two prelim rounds in our audition in at the Met, um, which was, uh, it's unusual and and it, it doesn't really happen in other orchestras. We had a snare drum and cymbals round, I believe. And a ten, that was the first prelim round to make sure everybody could play those instruments. And then the second prelim round was tambourine, bells, and xylophone. And after those two prelim rounds, then it was narrowed down to eight players. And we did the semifinal round. And the way it works in our orchestra is any player in the semis who gets higher than a majority vote. Um, so everybody on the panel, um, is not allowed to talk to each other. They're not allowed to discuss. They just vote yes or no for a player. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it turns out that what happened in that case was the only player to get a um, majority vote to get into the finals was me. And so um, in that case, 
we were all waiting around for the for the committee to vote and it was taking a long time and what i found out later is first they did that vote of who gets advanced to the finals and then they had to do another vote which was um i think it was something like should we hear the the second and third player in the final round even though they didn't get majority votes um and i and then they had to vote on that and then they had to do a third vote and i might be getting this the details wrong here. They had to do a third vote, something like, should we hear the first player, the the player to to advance to finals again? Should we hear that hear that person again? And I think the the vote was no. So that so at that point, they they just voted to end the audition and to to give me a job without advancing to finals. So we were waiting around for two hours maybe for all this. I, I had to wait through all the other semifinalists to play. And then we had to wait for the votes. And I was, you know, um, anxiously walking around on, on 65th street and Broadway. And I went into Juilliard to hang out with some friends and talk about all the terrible, stupid things that I did in the audition and all the anxieties I was having and thinking, Oh, you know, I prepared better than this. If I under, if I get cut, I understand. If I get advanced, it's lucky. And then I came back to hear the news that I had just been outright given the job at that point. So just a few hours then. That's that's very yeah. nice, man, that you yeah. weren't, like you said, having to wait for like a week or so afterward to find out. No, it's never like that. They tell you the day of. And it's in college auditions, in summer festival auditions, it's very different. You have to sit by your computer and reload your email you know, for a month and a half. Um, but yeah, orchestra auditions, they tell you right away. Now let's get to one of the things that everybody likes to talk about and hates to talk about simultaneously. Okay. You've just been awarded this position. Now you've already mentioned that, um, all orchestras have a CBA, have a collective bargaining agreement, uh, with the management. Is there any room when you accept this job to negotiate salary or do you just take what the CBA is given and then you can at a later time cross that bridge? Yeah. Um, the good thing is the CBA, uh, in, at the Met and in many orchestras around the country is very strong. Um, the orchestral musicians union is extremely, uh, strong in general and, um, and for the big orchestras, they already have a lot of the important things in there, health insurance and, and pension and, uh, wages and, you know, things like overtime, all that stuff is in there. And, um, the, the types of people, the, the types of things that people negotiate for mainly are salary. So above what the base pay is, you can negotiate, um, a you know, percentage over that or, or something like that. Um, and you can negotiate certain other things in some orchestras you can negotiate for, um, time off. Like if you don't want to play during the summer or, um, if you, uh, want to, um, get an extra two weeks of vacation beyond what the CBA gives, you can do that. Um, I know in our CBA, it says something like, um, this CBA does not, cannot prevent, orchestra musicians from negotiating even better conditions, uh, in their individual contracts. Um, yeah. So, um, um, yeah, my, my old, my old teacher 
from Juilliard who, when he went to LA, um, he negotiated a special thing where he got his own practice room dedicated to timpani. Um, and his drums, it's in his contract, I believe, they have to be moved from that practice room to the stage and back for every single service. Um, which is, uh, I guess it's probably a reaction from what he, the situation he was in previously. I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, I think that was, yeah, pretty badass. Having your, <laughs> having your own drum tech as a timpanist, man, that's a, yeah. that's a great negotiation ploy. I'll tell you, yeah. that's, that's fantastic, man. Now you mentioned something about, uh, days off or time off. Now the Met, once you guys are in season, you have a crazy schedule. It's, is it not typically six days a week that y'all are uh, performing? Now, I realize that there are some operas that may not have a full pit of percussion or have a full percussion section, but how often do you have days off, or better yet, do you have particular subs that you can call? Yeah, the Met Orchestra has uh, more subs or we call them associates, um, than any other orchestra in the country. Um, and it's because our full-time orchestra is only big enough to account for four out of seven of the Mets performances per week. Um, so the Met has seven performances, uh, Monday to Saturday night and Saturday matinee. Um, although next year we're adding Sunday matinee shows. Um, and so I, as a full-time member, I have to play four shows a week, which means if there's five shows, um, then they have to find a sub for me. Or if there's six shows with percussion there. So this week, um, there are seven shows. Um, and, uh, well, this week is kind of an, a weird exception because instead of doing four shows, I'm just doing seven shows. Um, I'm making up for another week where I did less than four shows. Um, so I'm paying the price, uh, this week. So it kind of yeah. has to average out then is what you're saying. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but we have, um, we have so many associates that do so many services in our orchestra that the associates themselves have their own negotiating group and their own contract with the Met. And that's the only orchestra like that. They have their own, um, um, agreement about, um, you know, pay and services and all that stuff. Rob, this is a great time to let the folks know out here that you have a wonderful website and I am going to include it in the show notes. So if you guys don't remember this, although it's pretty easy, his name is Rob Knopper. It's robknopper.com. You can go over there and you can check it out, but I'll include a clickable link in the show notes where you can go over and you can check out his site. And one of the things that we want to spend a good amount of time on moving forward is we want to talk about, in particular, snare drum, talk about some technique, talk about the the infamous De La Cluse that, that I want to mm. get everybody hip to. And... Uh, the first thing I want to ask you, Rob, regarding just education and teaching, because you're obviously huge on that, because that's that's a big thing on your website, is how much private teaching do you do in New York? I do some uh, school uh, students come here to you know visit New York to take lessons for their upcoming auditions quite mm -hmm. a bit. Um, I think I'm at at the Met. I'm one of the only musicians who somewhat consistently does lessons with non 
percussionists or people who don't play their own instrument um, because of the college audition or because of the orchestra audition work I do online. I, I see, you know, woodwinds and string players and, and brass players here and there. Um, I have percussionists uh, from around New York City um, come in to take lessons, but uh, but I don't um, I don't do it probably anywhere near as much as um, a lot of the other musicians in the orchestra because I really focus on doing the type of work that um, can have an impact um, more broadly. Uh, I, I, I really love doing one short piece, whether it's video or, or a blog or something like that, where I can have you know thousands of people get something out of it rather than spend time working on one student. And I know that both of them are fulfilling in different ways. I've just personally um, gravitated towards uh, enjoying and, and, and finding fulfillment in that kind of teaching. Understood. Now let's talk a little bit about snare drum teaching. Now sure. there, there are a, a couple of major dividing lines when we start talking about stylistic approach. And let's just, let's just cut right down the middle with a nice big old blunt sword here. Um, let's take rudimental drumming on one side and then let's take concert style drumming on the other side. Both sure. of them are played on a snare drum, but you you really couldn't get more opposite in terms of interpretation and in terms of literature. How would you best describe to the listening audience the difference between, let's say, a, a, a concert-style solo from either, say, Sarone or De La Cluse or Goldenberg, and then, let's say, an old rudimental solo, say, like Wilcoxon? Yeah. I guess the big difference is the roles. Um, double stroke rolls versus buzz rolls. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm not sure I approach them really that differently. I'm not the kind of person who would try to find out, you know, how a, how a piece was played in, in 1935 when it was first written and try to play it exactly that way. Um, I like to bring my own personality and style to it. And, and my own personality and style is not just from a classical place. It's also from all the other influences I've had, like, you know, rock music and, and playing jazz and ragtime and, um, being in bands and playing on, on drum set. Um, I bring all that to my classical music, concert music, and I bring all that to my rudimental music. Yeah. Well, that's a good answer, man, because one of the things I always tell all my drum set students also is that both of those styles of playing are incredibly beneficial to your drum set playing because you're going to use a lot of both of the elements inside of those styles. Uh, one of the things I always tell students in particular about concert style that you probably get a little bit more of in concert than you will in like a, say, a rudimental style is, of course, you're also, aside from the, the interpretation of the roles and say the drags and whatnot, but you're also going to have significantly more dynamic contrasts in concert style as opposed to rudimental style and also I think the approach to say Wilcoxon there's everything is basically written out sticking wise to highlight rudiments right as opposed to when you're talking about concert style a lot of times you're talking about sheer consistency from the standpoint of possibly repetitive notes with one hand and especially a lot of alternating strokes instead of quite as many double strokes. And I think that's incredibly important for drum set players to be able to have both of those types of disciplines to bring to the overall kit. And then you learn it on one surface. It's a heck of a lot easier doing it on one than it is trying to voice it all over a complete kit. 
So okay, yeah. So that's that's one of the one of the things I would really like to to hammer home to to my drum set students. Now, when we're talking about these two different styles, and and you made a great point. You said it's the way you're going to interpret the roles. Also, in just a rough in a rough description, how would you teach a student the basics of playing a double stroke role versus playing a buzz roll? Um, you mean how would I teach how, them how to play a double stroke role? Yeah, how, and a how buzz do you, role? Yeah, how do you how do you approach the technical aspects of that? I see. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I like this exercise um, that I do with students uh, when I'm working with them on their on their initial uh, rolls and and bounces with the stick. Where um, you know if they're having trouble getting a buzz at all, um, I say, okay, you know, you hold it, hold the stick. Uh, at the the pivot point and just just let it drop, um, and so you hear them go, bong 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 bong, bong. and uh, you say okay, do it again and try to put a little bit of pressure in it so that it ends earlier, bong 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 bong, 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 bong. and uh, the, and then um, and I say okay this time stop it after the second one, bong 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 and. Uh, and so I, I immediately from the beginning, I, I teach students that um, um, they have control over the spacing, the amount of space between the bounces. So by adding more or less force and pressure into the into the stick and into the head, they can play a a, uh, a more condensed um, buzz or double stroke. And by loosening the amount of pressure and and letting and, and releasing that tension, they can play wider, um, bounces. And, uh, and so that's kind of where, where I, I start people and, and very quickly I go to the kind of the, um, the, the difficult part, which is, uh, making sure that the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth bounce are not too much quieter than the first, especially for double strokes, but also for buzzes. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? It, it does, because that's one of the, I always ask teachers this question, because that's one of the things that it's it's very difficult in so many ways to articulate that. In other words, when you're in person with someone and you're sitting there and you're demonstrating it, it's a little bit easier a lot of times because, you know, a student can look under your hands. They can look at your hands. They can look at the way the stick is is acting on the drum head. But sometimes being able to articulate it is a little bit more difficult. But I thought that was a great answer. Cool. Let's now talk a little bit about concert snare drum and the setup process of a concert snare drum because it's very different from a drum set snare drum for several different reasons. And I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit about what you listen for as far as like, let's talk about the tuning, let's talk about uh, setting the snares because a lot of times on on concert snare drums you'll have multiple strainers with different types of snares that are underneath the drum and let's talk about head choices and all that good stuff so on your primary your game time concert snare drum let's first talk a little bit about the drum heads and the tuning what do you like as far as your drum head choices and do you have a particular method of tuning both the snare side head and the batter head Yes. Um, good question. Um, so it's important to remember before I dive into this, um, my goal 
with tuning my snare drum is to sound as good as I can for the players around me in orchestra. Um, and I'm not talking about just the other percussionists. I'm talking about the brass players, the woodwinds, the string players, um, because I'm in orchestra. So I'm not trying to sound like the snare drum that um, Rimsky-Korsakov wrote for in Scheherazade. I'm not trying to sound like the um, snare drum that was traditional um, in, you know, in Prokofiev, Lieutenant Kiji that he was trying to write for. I'm trying to sound like um, fresh and new and clean and excellent for the non-percussionists who, you know, in my experience have been listening to overwhelmingly loud and fat and um, overwhelming percussion their whole lives. And, and I'm not talking about the Met, I'm talking about just in general mm-hmm. um, in, in the world. Um, so my snare drum sound developed over years of playing for other people and trying to adjust it to, to be more pleasing to, to especially non-percussionists. And so when I really started doing a lot of mock auditions where I was playing for a lot of non-percussionists in, um, in Michigan and when I was in Florida preparing for um, the Met audition, I started, my drum started going in the extremely tight and clean and crisp direction. And I eventually... the sound evolved into, into what it is now. And so I'll explain that kind of how I, how I, where, where it ended up. Um, so I just wanted to kind of lay that out ahead of time. So Mm -hmm. people are not like shocked at what they hear. Um, so my, I, my general drum is for most stuff in orchestra and, you know, solo playing is a four by 14 Pearl Philharmonic. Um, four inches deep, 14 wide. And I use, so that's a relatively small drum for, in terms of classical, although in classical music, the size of the drum has evolved smaller and smaller over the years from six and a half being the general drum to five inch when I was in high school, um, to now where I think four inches deep is pretty standard for an orchestral drum. Um, and I, I, choose extremely thin heads and I tune them extremely tightly and I have to replace them all the time because thin heads tuned tight, um, get played out very quickly. So my top and bottom heads are, I believe the thinnest heads you can buy. Um, they, I use the M five, the Remo M five on top, which means it's five millimeters. Is that right? No, five five five, mil is what they call five mil. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I use the, uh, the diplomat, snare side hazy head which is Mm -hmm. it really feels like um like uh you know thinner than than paper thinner than like like tin foil or something like that um yeah so so both extremely thin heads which means that they're going to be extremely sensitive to the snares and i tune them really high um my uh my pitches that i tune to are a, a high b on top and a high f above that tritone above on bottom and for the four by 14 for whatever reason that ratio really works well interesting man is that when you say a high b is that like i suppose a major seventh above middle c or an octave in a major seventh above middle c 
I think the second one. And, uh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah, up there, I think man. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not totally sure about that, but I think so. It sounds really high. Um, and you can yeah. hear examples of it. You know, I have the drums tuned exactly that way on uh, my Delaclues recordings on YouTube. If you um, search for that, you'll 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 hear how high I mean. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Now let's talk about the snares that are on that drum. Um, on a lot of orchestral and concert style snare drums, there's three uh, sets of snares. Is that the case on uh, the Pearl Philharmonic? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, there's. There's, I guess, the louds, the mediums, and the softs. Yeah. I don't exactly know what the materials are and everything, um, but I just use the ones that they come with. Gotcha. Is there a particular formula that you use for the tensioning on those? Um, yes. So it's it's kind of different. The way you tune a drum is different for every drum, um, for every you know model or size of drum. And so the way I, the, the process that I go through to tune my five inch or my four by 13 is different, um, than what I'm all I'm about to explain. The process that I have found to work for my four by 14 is, um, is the first thing that I, ha that I have to do is tune the louds as high as they'll go without choking the softs. So on my five inch, I can tune the louds as, as tight as I want because they won't choke the softs. Okay. So I actually have to tune I have to test the drum at its high at, at a loud volume while tuning up the high the the loud snares to see exactly where I want it. So I like continue to to tighten 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 until bam, I found the right zone. Whereas on my 4x14, I actually have to check it I know that the louds will sound best when they're tuned too tight for the softs. They'll choke the soft sound. Okay. So I actually have to, to, to compromise by tuning them less high. So I, I actually have to check by tapping the drum at a low volume towards the edge and tuning the high, the, the loud snares as tight as they'll go before they choke. So you'll hear it's very clear. It'll be like bong, bong, bong. And so I have to tune it right below that point. And, uh, <clears throat> and then, then I've done my, my louds. Then I test, then I want to tune my medium snares. So I test it at a medium dynamic. The, there's not a problem on that drum with, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, tuning the medium snares too loud or too tight or anything. So I, <clears throat> excuse me. So I test the medium snares um, and I tap at a medium volume and I just tune them up until kind of the point where I know that they sound great. And tuning up to that point is a little bit like focusing a manual camera. You focus right up to it and then you go too far and then you come back to it and, and you eventually feel that out and you get quick with it. But at first you just have to kind of play and, and see and go up and down until you find a comfortable zone. Yeah. And finally, I do my softs by tapping soft and tuning up the softs, uh, the soft snares until they get to that zone. Gotcha. Gotcha. Great advice, man. That's fantastic. Now, let's talk about dampening because everybody seems to have their own sort of, of method of doing it. And there's there are some products that are made for it. And then there's the good old fashioned dampening cloth. What is your uh, weapon of choice for that? I have a silk handkerchief that I bought off of Amazon. Um and uh, I just use these little mini, super mini clips, pa uh, not paper clips, but they're the little black clips with the, the two little metal yeah. handles. Uh -huh. I don't exactly know what they're called. I forget. Um, 
and binder I, clips uh, or something yes, like that. Yeah. Binder clips. That's uh-huh. it. The super mini ones. I binder clip on a silk handkerchief. So the silk handkerchief itself is 14 by 14. So it, it would completely cover my snare drum, but I fold it over twice so that it's only covering about a quarter of it. Um, and I, that quarter is closest to me so that I can play on the part that's farthest away from me. Got, you need an endorsement for that, man. You got so specific with the Amazon silk hanky, man. So if you, if, oh, man. if those I folks gotta, are listening, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I got to get with a binder clip company too. Absolutely. So Rob's binder clips, <laughs> Rob, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and don't be modest here. When I say this, you've got to be one of the top authorities on De La Cluse method and do's etudes. Um, uh, well, the, the, the French Delacluse experts would disagree with you there, but I, I have done a lot of work on them. <laughs> uh, the French are a bunch of postmodernist knuckleheads. We do have, we have quite a few, uh, European listeners. So shout out to those folks over there. All we right. love you. And I want to spend some time talking about, uh, some of the De La Cluse technique. I want to talk also a little bit about one of the solos in particular in, in Du's Etudes. I know you know all of them. And um, I also want to make everyone aware that with all of the study and all of the work that you've done with De La Cluse Du's Etudes, that you have some incredibly beneficial and unique products that can help people that are working on those solos and in particular the the two that i want to talk about really quickly and again you can find these on rob's website there's going the the website uh, will have a clickable link in our show notes but you have got these overlays that provide stickings and measure numbers roll speeds that type of thing i mean that's that's basically like uh that's like private teacher on an overlay. I mean, that's that's fantastic. And then you've also got a series of metronome. I call them like tempo tracks because we have in these different etudes, you have some retards and that type thing that you just can't use a regular click with, a regular metronome with. So right. I wanted to make everyone aware of that uh, going into it. And I suppose those guys, they can just go to your website and order it straight from there. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I have them at, uh, yeah, robnopper.com slash Delaclues. Um, and uh, so I have, if you go there, there's a there's a bunch of um, resources like my interview with Delaclues before he passed away, um, interviews with different French percussionists, um, and uh, and I have some videos of the performances, and I have those products there that I that you just talked about. Um, yeah. How long did it take you to put together those overlays with all the stickings and the the roll speeds and all that stuff? I think the the most time consuming part was coming up with the stickings for my album and then getting them onto overlays was just a matter of figuring out Photoshop and how to add letters to a PDF and then take away the PDF essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, regarding the different things that are on those overlays are all of those stickings and all of those different roll speeds and whatnot proprietary to yourself or did you consult other people in conjunction with your own preference with those stickings? No, I developed those stickings for the album. Um, they're only, I, I didn't talk to anybody else about 
whether or not they agreed with me. I just, I just put, I made the album and wrote out all my stickings on the, on the music. And then I just transferred those over directly. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, for the listeners out here, I am not springing a surprise on Rob here. We talked about this prior to this. So what I do want to do now is let's, you and I, look at Do's Etude, the second one. And yes. I want to talk to you about it. I have a few questions about it, but I also want to get your overall overview of this solo. And the first thing I want to ask you regarding the overview, is there anything in particular about solo number two or etude number two that stands out to you? Um, yeah. So all 12 of the Delacluse etudes have almost all types of snare drum playing, um, classical snare drum playing. So whether it's rolls at different dynamics and, um, various kinds of grace notes. Um, they all have it, but certain ones emphasize different things. So, um, for instance, number eight emphasizes, uh, a lot of, um, soft single type work and number, uh, number 11 emphasizes a lot of grace notes, especially in quick, um, quick, extremely difficult passages. Um, number two is, for me, it's it's uh, it's about roles to me. Um, I think the uh, one one of the evidence of that that I was thinking that at the time of recording it is I used the drum that I think of as my rolling drum, um, where I where it sounds smoother to me, and it's my four by fourteen aluminum um, rather than brass drum. Mm-hmm. And the I think part of the reason is I I. It's it. This etude is not too fast. It's at a quarter note equals one hundred. It's in three four consistently throughout the piece, and there's tons of rolls uh, right from the beginning, but also in places like the seventh line where there's rolls coming in in a uh, uh, off the beat. So there's rolls all over the place. There's rolls with accents. There's rolls going from extremely soft to extremely loud and, um, vice versa. Um, and, uh, so to me, this piece is all about the roles. Yeah. Great. Well, and the first question about the roles, the majority of this piece is in binary rhythms, like 16th notes and whatnot, whatnot throughout the entire piece. Are you rolling all your roles in 16th? Um, no. And, uh, um, usually I don't just only do rolls at one speed like that. First gotcha. of all, if you, if you do, I kind of think of my loud rolls and my soft rolls as at any given tempo, having an ideal speed for loud and for soft. So, um, here, and I don't have my stickings right in front of me, but here, I think what I'm doing is, uh, is, at the beginning, when you do the forte quarter note rolls, uh-huh. I think I'm doing fives. Gotcha. Um, that's my ideal for for the loud roll there. Mm-hmm. And and when I say ideal, it means that you know if I add another stroke to a quarter note roll, it'll be too fast, and if I take one away, it'll be too slow. Gotcha. And then at at soft, I think it's you know sixteenth notes. 
um, gotcha. at this tempo. And so that creates a problem when you're crescendoing and decrescendoing in the role. So I'm always sort of playing between 16th notes and fives here. And of course, if there's something super fast, like um, a loud eighth note roll, like in the and third bar of the seventh line, so there's a loud forte eighth note roll, and then it happens again. Right. Sometimes um, I, so when it's five, for per quarter note, that means I could either play two or three here, and I usually play three here, I think. Gotcha. Well, that's a yeah. perfect segue for what I was going to ask you. If we will look just for a second at the fourth line, second and third measures, we have an eighth note figure to where the ends in the first measure are rolled, and then all of a sudden you have an accent in that third measure, and we switch to where we're doing eighth notes on the downbeats or on the numbered counts. On those, are you rolling threes uh, on those or like five clo closed five-stroke twos? On no, threes. Gotcha. Um, and so generally when you're crescendoing like this um, and you're using if you – if you're using the same roll speed, then mm -hmm. you're playing um, – you're playing rolls with fewer bounces, buzzes with fewer bounces near in the softer parts and with more bounces in the louder parts so that you can fill in – the the space there um, if you play loud buzzes with fewer bounces it'll sound empty and so if i want to keep the maintain generally the same color in those rolls as i crescendo and decrescendo then i'm constantly adjusting my variable of of buzz density gotcha gotcha yeah. now if we look down two lines and we look at the sixth line okay if you look at measures four five and six okay we have some quarter note rolls and some eighth note rolls into some eighth triplets that are there in particular on those eighth triplets are you playing all those single-handedly or are you how how are you sticking those no i'm alternating those alternating them all the yeah. way through gotcha um and you know what do you mind if i take a second to find my stickings and open it on my computer no please do okay all right this adds to the veracity of this show too man we're we're like we're not making any edits in this thing <laughs> yeah so i'm looking at the stickings here and what i see is um i'm alternating all the singles and actually in this case where these roles uh are happening mm -hmm. um i'm actually playing um fives here um, gotcha. with the rolls yeah for gotcha. whatever reason that worked better for me on my drum at this tempo yeah gotcha now just in overall uh with this second solo what do you consider to be the hot spot then again most people would say the entire solo is a hot spot <laughs> Yeah. Most Delaclues has hotspots. Right. And I think this one has fewer and less intense ones than the rest. But the crazy parts are line six, measure one. That's nuts. Um, yeah. Yeah. Zet, um, And um, fourth line from the end, the last measure. Um, anything where a, a rough is coming after 16ths. Um, is tough, but, um, 
as Jack Bell, one of the great percussionists, would say, he wants you to play a drag or a rough in a place where there's not a place to play a rough. <laughs> yeah, there's not enough time. I also think the first measure of the fifth line is a little bit tough. Because those short rolls are happening, really loud dynamics with accents and singles around them. Um, anything where you're you're going, where you're transitioning from uh, one ex- one amount of pressure to a, another amount of pressure very quickly, like that, rolls require a lot more tension in your hands yeah. than singles. So so that part is like that. Also, the third, sixth, eighth line, going from the third measure third measure to the fourth measure where you're playing a forte role to soft singles. That's a really extreme change. Yeah. That's more representative of a type of Delacluse classic, um, transition point. Um, and so second to last line, fifth, fourth to fifth measure is just like that too. Um, yeah. where you're playing forte with accents down to a soft role. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, man. Fantastic. I, I encourage everyone to check out your different products that you have for that. Um, it's nothing but beneficial, especially when working on something like this, what we would consider to be kind of the pinnacle of concert snare drum um, etudes. So uh, everybody check that out. Now, um, Rob, we're starting to power some things down here. Just have a couple more questions for you. And sure. I, I wanted to ask you, we touched on it just briefly at the beginning. But when you go down to the Met and you're going to spend a little bit of practice time, what do you currently work on? Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, all based on what I have coming up. I always like to keep my, my chops up in general, especially on instruments where chops can, um, can disappear. So that's like snare drum, tambourine, triangle, um, and cymbals. So I, I like to do my general warm-ups on those instruments. And um, I recently performed a, a ragtime xylophone piece with, uh, with a group. So I was working on that for a while. Um, and, uh, yeah, it really depends on what I have going on. But I like to give myself uh, a variety of, of things to work on so that I make sure to keep my chops up in the right areas. Just for example, if you pick up sticks, you're standing next to the snare drum over there. What do your hands just naturally gravitate toward? I mean, I have my warm up. Um, my my warm up is uh, a very uh, detailed series of of exercises that I do. Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. In other words, I know some people just go, "Well, I pick up sticks, and my hands just gravitate towards certain rudiments, so to speak." But you've got your own designated warm up that you go through. It's kind of a ritual. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can explain that. Um, so first, very first thing I do is uh, I set up my computer and I turn on the TV. Um, it's important for me to be watching TV while I do my warm up because it helps me um, it helps me warm up for longer and without getting bored. And it's it's really important that I spend times in the various areas of my snare drumming language that I know I need to work on. Um, you know, snare drumming um, is is not a series of specific rudiments and passages. Um, snare drumming is an entire language, um, and um, to me, the the basic rudiments of that language are not the however many twenty six or forty on the basic um, page, but they are the 
the fundamental um, um, basic types. Uh, let's see, how do I say this? They're they're the the um, the, the so it, if you take apart the English language and you say and and you would compare working on rudiments the classic rudiments to working on snare drumming. It's like saying, if I say these 40 short sentences, then I know how to speak English. But to me, um, I want to go even below that. So I'm not working on sentences. I'm not working on words. I'm working on letters. So the letters of snare drumming are to me, the three stroke types, singles, doubles, and buzzes that make up all the rudiments. And, um, the, the variable of dynamic is super, super important, especially in classical music. So my main focus is on working on the three stroke types at the entire spectrum of dynamic range. So I start by working on singles from with a certain set of exercises. The actual exercises are not as important, but the fact that I'm working on singles and then doubles and then buzzes to make sure that I can speak the entire range uh, of of letters, you know, we'll, we'll call them in, in snare drumming. And then after that, I work on transitioning between those letters. So singles to doubles, doubles to singles, doubles to buzzes, buzzes to to doubles, all six variation, uh, uh, transitions of stroke types. Um, and then I go to repertoire, um, whatever repertoire I'm learning. So that warm up takes me anywhere, you know, I can do a short one in 15 minutes, but I can also work on that for an hour and a half. And sure. what happens is I know that the areas of my technique that will start to disappear over time aren't that I can't play the hardest measure in Delaclues or that I can't play a certain rudiment. It's that I can't play a fortissimo buzz to a soft single, a simple transition like that, which is really the problem that's usually happening when you're have, when you're struggling with something in the repertoire. So when I'm working on that stuff for a long period of time, watching TV, it uncovers these weaknesses, these gaps in my language, uh, my letters of playing. So I, I can allow myself to, to hover around every gap and every weakness for as long as it takes to really, um, get some, some intensive work in on whatever it is that I'm, I'm missing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Tremendous. It absolutely makes sense. Now, Rob, we have a time-honored tradition when we're finishing up the show uh, that we put all of our guests through this, and we call it the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast Rorschach Test. Now, you might have thought, hey, I'm a classical guy. I'm going to skate from this. No, you're not. We put Jack Bell through it. We put John Lawless through it, so we're going to put you through it as well. And essentially what it is, is it's a series of 20 short answer questions. And I want you to just spit it out. Don't think about it. Some of them are going to have to do with music. Some of them have to do with life. Okay. Okay. Cool. I love it. So here we go. <clears throat> Question number one, softball for you. Favorite De La Cluz etude from Du's etudes? 12. Audition. Do you prefer face-to-face -face or behind the curtain? And this is for you auditioning they both are terrible auditions are terrible they just in general yeah, yeah. <laughs> good answer <clears throat> when you judge auditions what's the most common mistake that snare drummers commit playing grace note 
figures, either a flam or rough or a four stroke rough, louder than the notes around them, even without an accent, just because they're a grace note figure. Understood. Here's a New York City question for you. Cabs or Uber? Lyft. Ooh, off script. All right. How often do you change drum heads on your concert snare? Top and bottom. And I know you kind of alluded to that a little bit, that it's somewhat frequently. When I'm in audition mode or recording album mode, um, maybe every three weeks. When I'm in general orchestra mode, maybe every six months. Depends on how much I play. Gotcha. Sports. Love them or hate them? Baseball. And I'm a Detroit Tigers fan. All right. You like the Red Wings? Yeah. All right. I don't really care as much about hockey. Gotcha. My colleague from Michigan is a huge Detroit Red Wings fan. Understood. Flam accents or Swiss triplets? I don't know the difference. <laughs> Man, my co-host is going to love you for that. All right. Dogs or cats? Cats. Outside of snare drum, what's your favorite percussion instrument? Xylophone. What is your New York City food preference? Koreatown. Gotcha. And I, I love the um, kimchi pancakes that you can get down there. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. All right. Now, don't be afraid. You're not going to hurt too many people's feelings when you on this one here. But here's the question. Conductors needed by everyone or are they just there to keep the strings somewhat in time? <laughs> I think we need him. Oh, you're too politically correct. What's the most difficult rudiment for you to play consistently well? Can I uh, reference my rudiments sheet? Sure. Okay. Give me a second. Oh, flam accent. Okay. Gotcha. PC or Mac? Mac. If you are teaching a student, what is your favorite concert snare drum method book to use? Delacluse is not a method book, right? Well, they have one. He's got one that's called uh, Method. Oh, yeah, yeah. Casa okay. Claire, that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, th I think I usually just dive into the repertoire, and we work on methods from, from the repertoire, like a... Uh, taking things out of the repertoire and making up exercises. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm usually in Delacluse or Cerrone or the Joe Tompkins etudes, gotcha. the rudimental etudes. Yeah. Gotcha. What's your favorite vacation spot? Uh, Paris. My wife and I are probably just because my wife and I are going soon and we got married there. So it's a special one for us. Gotcha. I was gonna say, you're, you're putting way too much thought into this man. Okay. <laughs> Who's your favorite jazz drummer? Um, my favorite drummer is Bill Bruford. And he did some jazz, so that counts, right? I'm, I'm taking it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, now think about this one for a second. This is a fill-in-the-blank. Varez, ionization. I'll break somebody's knees to play the blank part. The snare drum part. Gotcha. I was going to say siren. Yeah, not the siren <laughs> part. No, I could, I could leave that. Somebody else should play that. It, it, playing the siren is fine. It's muffling the siren after you've already gotten it going is the problem yes yes what's your favorite tv show the office my wife would agree 
on a scale from one to ten, with one being blissfully happy and ten being totally miserable, where are the Metropolitan Opera muse- musicians on that scale? Ooh, I can't really speak for everyone else, um, but uh, we work a lot, so I would say seven. I've never been a full-time uh, orchestra member. I've only been a contract player to come in and play drum set on certain types of shows and why. And I would give every orchestra that I've ever played with somewhere between a one and a three, or excuse me, on the miserable scale, probably between a nine and a ten. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Last question. Dream gig. Berlin, Philharmonic, or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Oh, well said. But is Palmer going to be there? Eh, or am I Palmer? We're, you're going to be Palmer. And are we talking now or, I mean, before uh, before one or two of them passed away, like recently? Or no, are we talking back in the day? Let's talk about like brain salad surgery day. <laughs> yes. I want to play pictures at an exhibition with them in 1971. Oh, well, who doesn't, man? Right? <laughs> Rob, man, you've been a fantastic guest. I, I want to give you also just a moment to talk to the folks from the standpoint about your website or anything else that you might want to promote. Is there anything you want to relate to these folks before we sign off? Um, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I put out a lot of um, a lot of resources about, you know, teaching and, and percussion and uh, mainly because when I was was, uh, growing up as a, as an upcoming musician, there were just wasn't a lot of resources out there. Uh, there weren't a lot of resources out there. So, um, I spent a lot of time in the past four or five years just trying to put everything in my brain out in various ways. So I do it on YouTube and, and on my blog percussion hacker. And, um, and I'm hoping that, you know, some of what I have to say will just make it easier for people who are going through those same struggles now to get through those struggles. Um, so, you know, I have, um, if you go on, uh, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Rob studio, um, you can find some like videos about snare drum buzz rolls and, um, how to tune a, a snare drum, what we talked about before, but in extremely much greater detail. Um, and, uh, um, if you go on my website, robnopper.com slash percussion hacker, um, it's really, um, I just laid out, lay out everything that I have there. Um, so whatever you're kind of, um, interested in, um, you know, if you can go to this exercises, gear guides and other resources, I have all of my, um, all the pieces of my snare drum set up from the stand to the sticks, to the drum, to those clips and everything. There's an audition ready snare drum set up. There's what sticks I use for various excerpts. There's how to warm up. There's how to warm up on crash cymbals. There's my five useful snare drum grips, uh, my grip guide, where I talk about what the very vari- variations in my grip from soft buzzes to loud playing to etc. Um, so really like, you know, whatever you're kind of um, interested in learning about, I try to, to lay out there, but, but I am interested in, in covering things that covering, covering more things. So if there's, um, certain topics that, that, uh, that, um, people think I would have a perspective on that they would want to learn, they should really contact me, um, and let me know because I'm always kind of looking for ideas on, on different stuff to cover. I just have time during operas where I can go down to the basement and film, various techniques and, and, uh, um, um, things like that. So 
um, people can, um, you know, comment on YouTube or, or, uh, uh, reach out to me on my website. Um, and I'd love to hear from people. Yeah. Tremendous, man. Well, I will make sure again that that website and I'll also put a link to your YouTube channel as well in the show notes. So folks, you, when you're done with this uh, show, you can just page over to the um, show notes and you can click on either of those links and it will take you right over to Rob's site, either on YouTube or his uh, his regular website. Rob, thanks again, man. We appreciate you uh, joining us on the show. Thank you, Phil. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. That was something a little bit off the beaten path. We haven't had an orchestral percussionist on the show in quite some time, and we were due, and it was a good one. So many, many thanks to Rob. Like we talked about a few times during the show, please check the show notes. We have some clickable links in there to take you over to not only Rob's website, but his YouTube channel as well. There you can see just some tremendous videos of him performing uh, some of the De La Cluse etudes, as well as some videos talking about uh, his Audition Academy called Audition Hacker. And uh, you can find out a little bit more about that as well on his website. So click on those links when you get a few minutes and go visit Rob. Tell him you heard him on Drummer's Weekly Groovecast and that you appreciate what he's doing. Now, as for us, we are coming to the close of our third season. we got a few more episodes to go, but I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And as always, we never ask you guys for any type of money or any type of donation. However, if you would, please take a moment and head over to our page inside of iTunes. That is, in particular, if you are an Apple platform user head over to our page inside of iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That's the only thing we ask of you is just good reviews. So if you have a few minutes, please head over there and do that. It helps people who are looking for material of this ilk find us just a little bit easier. Now with that in mind, head over to our website. We are at drummersweeklygroovecast.com. There you can listen to all the other episodes that we have. You can check out our videos. You can interact with us on social media. And you can also email us with any suggestions or amplifications. Finally, if you haven't subscribed to us, please do. You can always find us at all of the usual locations. iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. New for 2019, find us on Spotify. If you can't find us or you're having trouble finding us, send us that email and we'll point you in the right direction. Now, we were having a little fun with Rob during our 20 questions during the Rorschach test, and we brought up the Edgar Varez percussion ensemble piece called Ionization. That's what you're listening to on the way out. If you haven't heard it before, it's really a wonderful piece. It's just one of the cornerstones of percussion ensemble literature, so I encourage you to check it out. All right, on behalf of Rob, this is Phil, and we'll see you next week.